You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 42, and uh, we're your host, Brandon. And I'm Allison. And let's talk some fermentation today. I figure we kind of just take it a little easy, and uh, instead of having a, a full-on topic, just do a little bit of a broad overview of what's been going on uh, these last week or two in, in fermentation news. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's great. There's been a lot of stuff in the news recently um, dealing with fermentation. Oh, yeah. And like I think the the most recent one that I just saw uh, was a, a Q&A on The Economist, uh, economist.com, talking with uh, Rene Redzepi, who if you don't know who he is, he is an awesome chef uh, over in Scandinavia. It's he... He's a part of, uh, or he's the creator of Noma, an uh, amazing restaurant that I've never been to, but everything it sounds like I would love it. Isn't that um, in in Denmark? Is that the place, I um, the restaurant? think so. I believe it's Denmark. I should have looked that up before the show, but it's it's <laughs> over there in that area. Okay. Well, um, I, know, I know the restaurant. The name sounds very familiar. Oh, um, yeah. They also, he's also a part of the Nordic Food Lab, um, which... I've talked about before. Um, they do a lot of experiments with food. Um, and just at Noma alone, he does a lot of things uh, related to foraging and also fermentation. And that's why I bring it up as something that he did a Q&A on. Um, and he also has a new uh, selection of books coming out. I actually just saw this link right before the show, so I didn't get a chance to really look at the books all too much. But they they do all kinds of creative things. I mean, uh, looking at, uh, at foraging wild items in, you know, Northern climates where there's generally not considered to be as exotic of flavors, but they're trying to see what is locally available that they can work with and, and create exotic flavors and make things that are world renowned and, and do stand up in a, in a, uh, amazing restaurant like Noma and things like, I mean, going to like f- finding out different ants that taste like lemongrass and, um, and then uh, the first time I, I had known about Nordic food lab, but I hadn't known about, um, about Renee specifically, but the first time I watched a talk of his at the Nordic barista cup, because I'm kind of a coffee geek as well. And, and follow those kind of things in lat or back in 2012, he had given a talk about how he realized that most restaurants, the, the coffee sucks and it's just horrible. And they, they, acknowledge that and they acknowledge the challenges of it, but he had pledged that he was going to serve good, actually good coffee. Um, and then the following year, this, this previous year, just recently, he was at the Nordic Barista Cup and he had followed through with that and then talked, gave another presentation on all the challenges of actually doing that in an upscale restaurant. Um, but so he, he's very serious and intricate about what, if he's going to do something, he's going to do it fully. The reason why I say all those kind of things is because at the end of this uh, Q&A, he's talking about fermentation and he's talking about how it will become a huge factor in cooking. And uh, he, to quote him, he says, the tastes can be so varied and different. We are fermenting wild berries and getting new liquids that are fruity, salty, savory, aromatic, just crazy good. We are just scratching the surface. And he's fermented all kinds of things. And this is this is some of the best uh, best chefs in the world that are really exploring flavors in new ways. Fermentation is something that's just, it's really going to change the the experience of, of cooking at home, but also of dining out at nice restaurants. I mean, it's going to be, I feel something fermentation really is just, just, just beginning, like you're saying, scratching the surface. 
yeah, I think it's just we're we're about to see a huge explosion um, when it comes to fermented foods. When you go to any type of restaurant, I think that's really cool that at the very end of his Q and A that I've I've briefly scanned over it. I haven't had time since you just found it. I just found it right now um, to uh, talk about fermentation. But yeah, the first part. Um, he said that he's fermenting all kinds of stuff in his test kitchen right now, like soy sauce, coffee, chocolate, bread, beer, wine. Um, you know, but he's also doing some crazy things like fermenting um, wild berries just to get different flavors and kind of expand his um, menu through fermented foods. Well, it's important to remember that. I mean, fermentation is a very traditional thing. It's been around for a long time, and there's, I'm sure, been plenty of things that were fermented throughout history that are no longer uh, traditional ferments that we know of today. They've been lost. They've been, they weren't handed down to the next generation or whatnot. So there's plenty of things that have been discovered and forgotten. Um, And now we have a chance to rediscover some of them, but also with all the new understanding of, of science and cooking, take things to a whole new level uh, with, with fermentation and and otherwise be that, um, you know, more in the, the, the food, science realm of, of isolating cultures and experimenting with things in different ways, or even still doing kind of traditional ferments, but doing them on ingredients or, um, wild, uh, foraged items that otherwise we don't know what it's going to taste like unless Mm -hmm. we try it. And there are people that are trying it and people that are trying it that aren't just, just trying it in their home kitchen. These are people that are trying it and trying to create something that is marketable and, um, shareable with the world. And so these kind of things are, have the potential to be much different because we're otherwise in some ways running out of flavors, but fermentation provides a whole new world beyond just foraging. Foraging provides all kinds of different flavors, but fermentation provides even more flavors, even more complexity. Right. It's just really interesting. And, and so I, I look forward to looking more into this book and uh, possibly I'll get it as well, but I'll put the link in the show notes for that. Um, I, I want to see how much is about fermentation and how much, I mean, he's written another book, uh, a cookbook a few years back that was uh, James Beard nominated or awarded. I don't, I don't know which one. Um, and it was, I, I think definitely check him out. I mean, he's the, the Nordic food lab. They were the ones that uh, disappointed me the first time with, are you familiar with uh, black garlic? No, I'm not. I'm not familiar with it. It's generally referred to as fermented black garlic. And Maybe I've heard of it with just fermented garlic, not black garlic. Yeah. I mean, either way, it comes out black. It's kind of tastes like black licorice kind of like deep, not like full on black licorice, but it has hints of that in, in clove and other things. It's it's really amazing flavor to add to things. And also, I just think it's kind of fun just to pop a clove in my mouth. It's kind of like garlic candy. Uh-huh. which might sound kind of weird, but it actually tastes really good. And it's not quite as, it's not, as, it's not nearly pungent like it is, but um, it gets put at about 140 degrees for um, a, a, quite a few weeks. And uh, it's often, again, referred to as fermentation, but the Nordic food lab, they were the ones that kind of explain it, that it's more of an enzymatic uh, transition that's going on and it's not microbial. So I was a little disappointed to find out it wasn't fermentation, but it still tastes so good. So it's, and it's still kind of like a fermentation process. It still seems very much so like that, but they're, they're, they're very good at it. it, From what I can tell, um, really breaking things down and looking at them, um, accurately and, and figuring out 
how to ferment things, how to create all kinds of new flavors, do all kinds of different things. So if check out the link, if nothing else, look at the Q&A for Renee Redzepi. Yeah, I'm excited to I'm excited to read the whole thing. I mean, um, again, you it was right before we started recording this, we were slightly talking about it um, on the side. And so I'm interested to read the whole thing um, and to look at some other stuff that he's been doing. I, again, am not familiar with him as a chef. Um, but I mean, who I mean, that, he would be an interesting person to read up on just because, um, yeah, you're talking about ants that taste like lemongrass and thinking outside the box to create new flavors um, and not necessarily fermentation wise, because ants aren't necessarily they're probably not fermented ants. They're probably just I don't know where they're coming from or what would even possess him to eat them. But, you know, stuff like that. That's really, really interesting in how foods can take on a whole different world um, and um, be used to create different flavors. Oh, yeah. And then another way to discover things, you did see the article about human cheese, right? I did. That's another way to figure out and discover flavors. Yeah, I made my husband watch it with me. There's a video um, on one of the websites that uh, talks about it in a little detail. Um, And we both sat and thought like, man, that's a really great, that's a really great um, science project to, to be making cheese out of, out of, um, human bacteria. Maybe you want to explain it a little, a little more since. Yeah, it was a, it was, it was a project that was the making of 11 cheeses using human bacteria. So bacteria that was collected by sterile cotton swab, um, from different, uh, famous people, um, you know, Michael Pollan's, uh, belly button, uh, Ben Wolf, who was on episode 28, uh, the microbiologist that studies cheese rinds. He had his toe microbes, um, used for culturing cheese, culturing dairy product, and then turning it into cheese. And, and these cheeses then, well, just cheese in general sometimes smells rather like, uh, different stinky parts of, of human bodies anyway, but this, these cheeses smelled and, and, uh, would arguably taste similar to the body odor of the different donors and specifically the areas of the body where it was donated from. And, uh, and it was an American scientist, scientist, uh, Christina Agapicus is how I would guess to pronounce that. And Norwegian scent expert, uh, Cecil Tolas is how I'd pronounce that one as well. I don't know exactly on those pronunciations, but the, the, it was a, it's kind of a mix of science and art because these cheeses weren't meant to be eaten. They were meant to be a way of looking at organisms and food in a little bit different of a way and how my, uh, as, as they put it, how microbiology can be used to harness and manipulate such organisms to create synthetic microbes with enhanced properties. So they're not only looking at these, these natural occurrences of microbes, but how we can look at some of these organized systems and create future tastes or other properties else elsewhere and, and otherwise. And the only disappointing thing was that no one was going to eat these cheeses. I don't know. I mean, if it's going to smell like the body part that it came from, I'm not sure if I would be willing to try some of the cheeses. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, um, you know, if it was made from a part of the body, like your hands, I might be willing to do it, but, um, I don't know. Belly button cheese doesn't really sound that great to me. <laughs> yeah. Probably the safest one was, uh, tears. The, yeah. the bacteria and tears. <laughs> I don't think that would really turn that many people off. It would just be kind of sad, but, um, it, 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 I, I don't know. I'm undecided. I think I would, I'm curious. I really want to kind of try this, but I guess I have to get better at, at aging cheeses to begin with, to be able to, uh, 
to trust my attempts at doing something like this. And again, it may not even be edible. Um, Ben Wolf would probably be a good one to ask about some of this stuff as to even if it is edible, because I know it's kind of the gross factor, but so much cheese smells stinky anyway and smells gross. Some people love it. Other people can't stand it. So maybe it's back to one of those things where if you just don't tell people what it is and have them try it first, that might not sway their judgment as, as much. Yeah, I mean, you'd probably have to tell not tell me who or what it was made out of. Just hand me a piece of cheese and say, eat this. <laughs> um, well, this uh, this project, um, the self-made project, I lo- was looking at it from a slightly different point of view. And it was – I saw it more as um, an, an exhibit that showcases how we shouldn't be afraid of bacteria or microorganisms because some of them are good. And, I mean, this is – a great example of things that are that grow on your body that we consider ourselves pretty clean usually clean clean people like we take showers and um personal hygiene especially in the united states is very important so um i was looking at it from a stance of um we shouldn't be afraid of uh things that grow in places that we don't necessarily think of as having bacteria or organisms that can be used to make cheeses Maybe they could use it to make yogurt or something else. You could find a really cool microorganism um, that can be used for something that is edible. And I think that is totally possible. And I think it does kind of happen to a certain extent. I mean, some of the microbes that are on us um, are actually in cheeses. They just aren't cultured that way. I mean, because... Yeah, like you're talking about, it does make sense. I mean, thinking about it, and cheese, I think, is a great way to draw people into something like the microorganisms all over our bodies and the odors that they sometimes create if don't shower for a few days or different things like that. Um, and then how similar that is to a, a aged cheese and the environment because they're not being bathed every day, so they're going to start to stink or build up different odors as well. And, and, and so getting people to, to wrap their mind around all of these different microbes that are everywhere and how they affect things. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's another great aspect of, of, you know, I really would call this, I mean, I think it was kind of an art installation concept, but it, it this is, I really enjoy this melding of science and, and art and, it does it. When I first saw it, it had kind of an effect on me. I was like, wow, I really like that idea. And I don't even know exactly why yet. And so it took me a while yeah. to figure it all out. I think it's a great idea. Um, and uh, you know, talking about how there are microbes that grow in our body that can be helpful, um, quote unquote helpful. Um, another great example of something that is made that you can consume is, um, there's a beer that's made in Oregon from the rogue brewery, um, where the head brewer, he has a really thick beard. He's grown it since like the seventies and he, I don't think he's shaved it off since then. Um, and when I was, um, working at white labs, we cultivated, um, a yeast strain that grows in his beard, which is used now to make, um, the beer is called old crustacean, but it's made out of the yeast from his beard. Um, I haven't had a chance to try it. I guess it's pretty rare to find. Um, I've been looking for it for probably the past six months here in San Diego and I just can't find it anywhere. Um, but it's kind of one of those gross factors, but yet so cool. I think it's so interesting, um, where I really want to try it, but I am just going to have to brace myself, even though I know it's not the actual yeast from his beard, it's been propagated for generation, you know, generation to generation to generation. Um, and there's no way as I've even seen the inside of his beard, um, 
but it's used to make this really cool beer called Old Crustacean. So um, if anybody sees it, they should definitely send it my way or send me an email telling me where to find it. Well, and that's a, a very intriguing aspect and think something to think. So would that be more of like something like um, a yeast inspired? I mean, obviously it was discovered in his or found like taken from his beard, but kind of inspired by his beard. Because you're talking about it's generations apart from those that were actually inhabiting his beard. And uh, more than anything, it sounds like it's just isolating a yeast as I mean, well, all the yeast had to be isolated from somewhere. So they're all growing on something and some are just isolated from already food sources. And then otherwise sometimes they have to search out or those that are being isolated are being searched from elsewhere outside of food. I mean, how, how do you decide what is safe to consume or is it really, is there, I mean, what, like could a person isolate a certain yeast strain that would not be safe to turn into beer or is the process of beer making with an isolated yeast inherently going to create something that's drinkable? I um, I think that um, you can definitely culture yeast um, anywhere from anything. Okay. Um, there is a place up in um, at UC Davis um, in their food science building. They have the I think it's pronounced PAF collection or FAF collection. I can't remember the correct pronunciation of this this professor's last name, but he's gone all of, all over the world and has collected yeast from like Egypt and the Hawaiian um, Hawaiian volcanoes and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it, I don't know if some of those are used for food sources or if they've decided that they are not usable. But I to go back to if something is usable versus not usable for fermentation, um, there are certain strains of yeast that are I don't want to say harmful, but probably I, I think that you would just use your intuition to be like, ooh, this doesn't smell good. Um, I probably shouldn't drink it. Um, but you can also, I mean, from the science pa- aspect of it too, um, you can send it off to get what's called PCR DNA extractions and figure out exactly this genius species of, of this yeast itself. Um, so I'm I, I think most people would, if they're doing something in their backyard, I think that there should be some caution um, advised to that because there are stuff in our back, you know, that's found in nature that are not good. Um, but if you used it, I think it would just produce an, a terrible off flavor or it wouldn't ferment or all that kind of stuff um, that would make it inusable for us to really enjoy. So for the home fermenter that has a long beard and say they didn't want to make beer but they wanted to make say bread. Could they make a wild starter that is inoculated to begin with, with some beer shavings? Sure. I don't see why not. Okay, um, so, so wild yeast, the ones that are going to make a sourdough starter bubble are, uh, we're not giving advice or like if anything happens, it doesn't <laughs> smell good. Don't eat it please. But, um, but if, as long as it smells like a starter of sorts, then, I mean, it's just, it may have helped had it might've had some yeast in the beard that helped propagate it. Sure. I wouldn't see why it wouldn't do that. Uh, I think that, um, the good bacteria that's usually used for fermentation or good microorganisms, they going back a few episodes when we talked about contamination and, um, how fermenting is safe because it drops the pH of, um, the entire um, media lower than that threshold that set, what is it, 4.2 pH um, that would keep out the harmful bacteria. So I think that there's 
not much of a risk in creating your own beard sourdough starter um, just because of those reasons. But at the same time, I don't think um, it would be wise to do it. But I mean, I don't know. You set out, people set out um, flour and water on their countertop and they collect wild yeast and wild sourdough starters that way. So I think there shouldn't be too much worried or yeah, I mean, there really wouldn't be that much difference, I wouldn't think. I mean, it's no, like, uh, because people's containers, hands, otherwise, I mean, they're all, most people aren't sterilizing their equipment before making sourdough starter. It's just wild catch the sourdough uh, with the flour and water, like you're saying. And so some people add fruits or other things that might already have yeast on them. Adding beard shavings wouldn't really be that much different. No, it'd be, yeah, it'd be exactly the same. Um so I don't think that people should necessarily be too hard pressed to try it out. But at the same time, I mean, always use caution um, when you're doing something like that. Yes. Uh, it's uh, don't try that at a home unless you don't, uh, don't, don't take our advice in regard to using beard shavings, but if you really have to try it, at least let us know how it goes. Right. <laughs> um, and, and other interesting at least kind of fun look at, at fermentation and how to translate that into other uh, music in this, this example, the, the hacking arts festival, which is a part of the MIT media lab, or at least it was at the MIT media lab, uh, did a ferment from fermentophone. And it was algorithmically generated musical composition um, that was performed by living cultures of bacteria and yeast. It was pretty cool. I mean, not as in amazing music, I don't think these bacteria and yeast are used to being rock stars or anything, but they, they did create music based on having vessels that they had food, fermenting food or beverages in. And then they had, it looked like airlocks at the end of those. And then the bubbles that they would uh, create in the fermentation process coming through the airlock would then generate uh, musical sounds. Did you watch that video? Did you get a chance to? Oh yeah, I watched it and um that was pretty amazing. I I would have never thought of doing something artistic like that. Um but it's a great way to kind of liven up the fermentation process. Um and the music, yeah, it's not like great music. Um it but it was just interesting that even there weren't period there was not a stop. It was constantly uh the fermentophone was constantly running. You could always hear a sound. Um, so it's always bubbling and, um, however they have that set up. I mean, to me, it was pretty amazing that they even thought of it. Oh yeah. And it's a great way, I think, to introduce people to fermentation that may otherwise not be familiar with it. I mean, music's a good, good way to bring people into it. And I, I know that all the ferments that I have going on, uh, they bubble and make, uh, fizzing sounds if I have jars closed and they need to be burped or otherwise. And so it's, you know, there's definitely sound to it. And then just converting that sound into something that's that's even more perceivable to the human ear is is fascinating. I think it's a, again another great transitional way to inspire people to start fermenting themselves and or, mm -hmm. or at least be more aware of what fermentation is. Now, when I was listening to and watching the video that's associated with it, um, I couldn't really tell, but maybe um, you could. It, was there a different sound coming from the different types of fermentations that they were that they were because they were doing a lot of different things too. One looked like there was sauerkraut. One looked like some sort of beet fermentation, but they're all making different sounds. 
Yeah, and I think that was due to the because they were wired up to electronic sensors, and those sensors were then generating oh. the the musical <laughs> composition. It was done algorithmically, which I'm assuming that was based on if it was a small bubble or a big bubble. I see. Got it. And so they, uh, based on that, then it gave that kind of creepy organ, uh, pipe organ kind of sound to it. I, at least that's what I remember. Um, maybe, maybe I'll try and play some in the in the background while we're talking in this section so that people can kind of hear. It. But also go view it on on Vimeo and, and watch it. And uh, it's it's worth an, another project for. It'd be especially fun if a person can figure out how to do it. A project science project for for kids for science fair or whatnot yeah i think that's a great idea that's a really fun way to again incorporate um art and science um which seems to be kind of the theme um for the last few articles that we've been talking about with the first one with the q a section and then the human cheeses um so it seems as if a lot of people are taking the the fermentation aspect and making it turning the science into art. And, um, that's, it's a really unique way of, uh, looking at something that, uh, people have been doing for generations and generations, the fermented food and using it to incorporate art. That is. Well, I think we have the luxury nowadays that we are not required to ferment by any means with the industrialization of food in general, we don't have to spend hours in the kitchen fermenting. Now we can choose to do it if we want. And so doing it is really an act of um, not of drudgery anymore as it could be for some people or, or of just tradition or, or any other thing. It's now it's people can really own it and choose to do something with it. I mean, it's um, it's exciting. I think, I think fermentation is, is exciting. Would I have the same mindset if I was just, stuck in a kitchen all day, preserving everything because there were no refrigerators. There were no other ways to store things over the winter in a temperate climate. Maybe it wouldn't be quite as exciting and there wouldn't be as much chance for exploration in that sense. But now, I mean, fermentation is really a luxury, even though it is makes such a, a, an important aspect of a person's diet. I mean, it's something that we can choose to do. And so in doing so we can make art. Yeah, it's really neat. And then, um, well, at the very, I, I just recently got back from um, a trip to the Central Coast. I went to San Luis Obispo with um, my husband for a few days this past week. And when I was there, um, there was a flyer at one of the hotels we stayed at. And um, to, again, to mirror or um, bring up art and science, um, the Children's Museum in San Luis Obispo is doing um, continuing education and um, a series called Science After Dark. Um, and the one that they're having, the next one they're having on December 11th is called Molecular Gastronomy. Um, and it, it's really neat. It's not fermentation related, but it's taking the, um, culinary aspects and food science and using, um, physics and chemistry and, um, biology and, um, using them to talk to people about food and how it can be created and lots of different ways of using it and um, how there is a, a sort of artistic side to um, food and developing food. Well, that actually reminds me that, that I think that's a great one for anyone that's in that location. But if people are interested in molecular gastronomy, there's an edX course, one of those um, MOOC courses, the the massive online 
I forget what the acronym stands for, but the, the online educational courses that people, people can watch the lectures and, and be involved in the, uh, the homework and do an actual course that's already started. But I, I know that that was a popular course on edX. I'll put a link to that one as well so that people can do molecular gastronomy in a, in a college level course and, and learn about these kind of things because they may not be specific to fermentation, but if you're really, if you're listening to Furb up, if you're listening to these kind of talks, then it's probably would not be that far of a stretch to assume that you would probably enjoy molecular gastronomy as well. Right, right. And it's just a really interesting, cool thing that um, it's becoming, again, more mainstream. It seems like we bring this topic up all the time, um, how um, a lot more interest is being presented or there's more people interested in talking about food and exploring um, different flavors and um, just different ways of making food um, um, at home or even on an industrial level. And is this one, were you saying was for kids or for adults? Um, this one I think is for adults, okay. um, even though it takes place at the Children's Museum. Um, I'll put a link to their Facebook page um, in the show notes. So if anyone's interested or in the area in Central California or even in San Luis Obispo, they should definitely go check it out. I even think it's pretty reasonable, maybe even just $5 just to get into the door and just listen to the lecture. Sweet. I think that's exciting. And even if it is for adults in a children's museum, I mean, that's perfect because molecular gastronomy, I mean, that's like adult play. That's so exciting. I mean, yeah, it's perfect, perfect <laughs> setting for it. Right. It's, it's, a, I wish I was going to be there. Um, but it, you know, uh, if anyone goes, they should let us know how it went and anything that they learned that was interesting. Yeah. I'd be excited to hear that, what that's like. And, uh, and speaking of California, looks like the Sriracha facility, uh, the, which one is that? The, the one that, that makes, I think the one with the rooster on it, the, mm -hmm. the packaged sriracha sauce is, is a judge recently just said that they have to stop creating their irritating odors because it's a extremely annoying, irritating and offensive uh, to the senses, warranting consideration as a public nuisance. And so they're, they're saying they need to stop making the stinky smells. So what that means they'll, we will do for production of their sriracha sauce. I don't know, but even though I don't really know the process of, of the Hoi Fong food sriracha sauce, if it's fermented or not, but what a perfect reason if you do use that uh, sriracha sauce to then just start making it yourself in case it gets taken off the shelves for a while as they try and re figure out how to do things. I mean, make your own fermented sriracha sauce. So that was an article that wasn't exactly fermentation, but there's always a spin on it that can make it fermentation. Have you ever well, made I sriracha sauce? I haven't, but I found a recipe um, to make it, and it looks as if it is a fermented product. I mean, it looks like you um, – let me see. You – oh, um, I had the recipe on my desktop, but I couldn't find it. Here it is. Um, it looks like it's just jalapenos and garlic and brown sugar, um, kosher – kosher salt and uh, vinegar. So you mix everything together except for the vinegar and you leave it on um, your countertop for a week, um, seven, you know, 10 days, something like that. Um, and then you add the vinegar. So it is, it, I didn't realize this, but you know, I didn't realize a lot of hot sauces were fermented until recently. Uh, including sriracha sauce. Which... Including sriracha sauce. 
Now, again, whether or not Huafang Foods is, is fermenting theirs or if they're doing some skipping step. But if it's smelly, I mean, there's a good chance there probably are. And another good reason to ferment at home is that it doesn't – fermentation on a large scale sometimes can get kind of stinky or otherwise. And people have to then deal with that that the issues of a large amount of waste product or waste odors or different things like that. And, well, at, at home, you don't have – I mean, it, sure, it might get a little stinky. When I'm making kimchi, I sometimes smell it in the cupboard. Or if I'm fermenting – red onions. I definitely smell that for the first couple of days, but it's part of the process. And, and I really kind of enjoy that, that smell now. Um, mm-hmm. I am associated with such, I mean, whereas other people might think it's stinks still, but still on the home scale, it's never going to be as stinky as a big factory. Right. And you can, I mean, you can air it out a little bit and it, it goes away. I mean, it's just, um, they're not, it's just byproducts of the actual fermentation. So they blow away pretty fast and yeah. They don't stay around forever. Um, that was really that's really interesting about the um, Ho Fong Foods getting fined or not fined. Sorry, a judge telling them that they need to figure out this smelly situation that's going on. Yes, it's annoying people. So annoying. That's it. a funny funny word for people to complain about. Annoying. It's annoying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would think that living by any kind of food factory would probably be offensive smelling of sorts. I mean, the Quaker Oats facility in, uh, I've lived in Iowa for a long time and, uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa has a Quaker Oats facility and it stinks in that city all the time. Whenever I've driven through there, um, and oh, it's, yeah. it's not something that would stink in the final product, but the making of some of their cereals or oats or whatever they're, they're creating there stinks. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I grew up in a town where um, I, it's Tate and Lyle. They, that used to be, um, they used to, I think they still do, they make um, corn syrup. And that process is pretty smelly. Um, and just depending on where we were in town, it would be very strong and offensive. Um, and other times you wouldn't smell it or if there's a change in the, in the wind, um, even different periods of the year, like in the summer, it was usually pretty bad versus in the winter. Um, so, I mean, I think it's just one of those things that if you'd get used to it or you just move away, I mean, they're not, yeah. there's not that much that they can do about it. Yeah. The judge should just tell those people to move away. You just don't like away. it, just move. <laughs> but if, uh, it is an important thing to consider with any kind of large scale production of anything, there are waste products that are not really considered much of a waste product on a small scale, like say cheese brine in, uh, when a person's making cheese at home and they use a brine, they can reuse it a lot of times or, or, or just toss it or whatnot. And it's just such a small amount. But when you're talking about a large scale facility that has, is making large amounts of cheese, that's a big waste product that costs money to, to take out. And that's another news article talked about it before, but it's again being done in, um, in different areas in Wisconsin, I'm sure elsewhere as well, but Wisconsin is going to be using uh, dairy waste products for um, uh, putting on the roads instead of, because here in Wisconsin, it gets a little slick and icy and salt is put down a lot. And a much less expensive way is to use uh, the brine from, from dairy uh, cheese. And it not only provides a way for the company that makes the cheese to get rid of waste that otherwise they were spending a lot of money to transport and figure out how to dispose of. And it also helps the, the, the County because they are getting a much cheaper source of, um, de-icer 
And at the same time, it's even, it actually works better than the salt that is normally put on the road because it won't, it stay, it won't allow the ground to freeze for even lower temperatures, like negative 20 before it will start. I forget what the number was exactly, but it keeps, so it actually works better than just the regular salts. Maybe there's some things that don't work as well about it, but I guess there's a certain kind of smell to it as well. So there's a smell where people are accepting it because it's safer and cheaper and better for the environment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really cool way of using something that's considered waste and using it in a positive way. Um, and, but in the article, the other thing that was really interesting, um, was the, the dairy itself was saving like $30,000. Um, by, it's, not, it's not cheap to it, dispose of waste. No, it's not. But then also the the county was saving $40,000 as well. So, I mean, it's just a, just using something like that that seems like such a waste product and using it in a positive way. Um, it's They can use the, those funds for other things in the community, um, for the, the county. And then, you know, the dairy can um, use the money they save for other things. Who knows whatever they could use it for. But um I thought that was really interesting, just the magnitude of the cost savings to use a natural byproduct instead of using salt that is harmful to roads and corrosive. And um, then you have to do the maintenance on them after so many years because they start to crack. Um, so it's just really interesting. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder how much this affects or will, will make those kind of things, uh, things better. And other parts that are probably hard to measure as well would be in regard to lives potentially saved or whatnot, because that's the other thing that maybe... Uh, I know you've been in the Midwest before, but people that are in areas that aren't from that don't get as much snow or as cold. I mean, here in, in Madison, they've had years where they've they've run out of salt budget because there's it's been a heavy winter in the beginning of the season. And so there's very little salt to put down at the end of the season. So then that means the roads are icier for longer and it's more dangerous. So if there's a cheaper product that will actually work better anyway, I wonder how many lives that saves or at least accidents that prevents or potentially prevents. And I'm sure there's not really an easy way to measure that, but maybe over the long term, if more places start doing this, we'll see some of that rippling effect as well. Yeah. And also too, I mean, the interesting thing, so the, the I read the article, but there's also a little short video. It's like a two minutes long um, where they're also using the uh, brine as a pre-treater before they use the salt too, if they're expecting um, severe temperature decreases and that sort of thing. Um, they're using it as a pre-treater to make the salt that they put on the roads more effective. And they're also not having to use as much salt. Um, uh, so it's just a creative way to go over a problem and again, use a waste product. Um, but there's a lot of breweries not to talk about breweries again, um, that do the same thing with their leftover, um, waste. They don't use it to put salt, you know, to put it on the road. Um, but they'll sell their spend grains. So the grains that are used to brew the beer, um, and they'll usually sell them to, uh, farmers to be, um, used as feed for cattle, pigs, horses. No, it's a, that's slightly off topic. And, and some of those, like, it's, um, it's more of a filler at that point, right? When it's, um, with, with that stuff. I think um, for certain animals, like pigs, they just feed it to them directly as is. Um, But uh, I think that it is used as a a filler, but then that reduces the amount of feed that they, that the farmer has to buy for their cattle or their livestock. Um, And then in some breweries too, they even use those spent grains to incorporate it into bread um, when they're making bread. 
Yeah. And it's really tasty. I've, I've done it before. Um, usually whenever I brew beer at home, I save some of my spent grains and make, um, cookies out of them or, you, you know, add it to bread. Um, cause it's really still full of like fiber and all sorts of really great vitamins, um, that are in the, um, the, the husks of the, the grain itself. So, um, again, it's just using, something that would just normally go in the trash and just a waste product for something to reuse it and recycle it for something positive. Oh yeah. And I mean, some of these recycling things are a little bit more challenging as in they don't have the win, win, win kind of money savings on all ends. Some things do end up costing a little bit more. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I mean, still they're important. I mean, I think there should be more partnerships like this and and figuring out how uh, one person's trash is another person's treasure. So we just got to figure out more aspects of where that can be the case. And I mean, there was another article on, uh, you know, the public radio I, or uh, a little segment that I was listening to about using, uh, turning dairy waste into biofuel. And so, and, and there's been, I remember, I don't remember which episode it was, but sauerkraut being turned into um, a biofuel as well, somewhere in France or elsewhere. So there, there are all kinds of waste products and specifically waste products from fermentation that can be used otherwise. Sure. And it's, I, I, I've heard of, um, dairies using bacteria, um, to turn, to turn dairy waste into biofuel. I think there is a a dairy somewhere in Illinois or Indiana who uses solely um, dairy waste to run their um, heaters and um, a lot of their machinery. Uh, They have like their own little um, system outside of their dairy that they feed the, feed the bacteria with waste um, and they use that to power everything. So I think it's still in place, not in a major, um, large scale. Uh, but it's cool that people are using or getting thinking outside the box. Yes. And that it's interesting enough that, uh, different media sources are starting to share it with the public so people can become more aware of it. I mean, who knows? Someone could be listening to this podcast, never having heard about that, but then realize some kind of waste product in whatever company they work for that could be used somehow well. And so never, never know where someone's going to come up with a good idea and use it for, uh, Use it for good. Turn waste into good. Right. <laughs> and uh, in other news regarding, I, did you have a chance to look at this one on microbial ter- terroir in regard to the microbes? The, the, the specific, I think it's referred to as biogeography of different great microbes. Again, the study was on wine. So uh, looking at that and, and how th- all the factors that would affect microbes are actually a part of where that terroir, those different flavors that place uh, people claim uh, come from different, um, different regions or different uh, vineyards and the, the flavors may be based partly on the microbial terroir. Um, Do you get a chance to look at that one? No, I haven't haven't had a chance to look at that article, but that sounds pretty, it makes sense in my mind. Um, that microbial terroir, terroir, I always have a hard time saying that word, terroir. It's a difficult, one, yeah. it's a difficult word. It's a French word. I have a hard time pronouncing French words. Um, is dependent on um, the where, where they are in the world, um, the 
the soil that they're grown on. Um, that makes sense in my mind. Um, there are certain places where um, certain types of bacteria can't survive at all, like the bottoms of the ocean. Um, but they found other species of bacteria thriving in those thermal hot springs underneath the ocean. So I think it, it, it makes sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, it's like my, my knowledge of terroir comes from, from coffee and, and growing, uh, not from growing coffee personally, but from from different regions. I mean, uh, even even different micro lots on the same farm can have different uh, taste uh, and flavor profiles in the finished uh, roasted coffee. And that's partly, uh, as far as I've always understood it is, it's based on the, the microclimate of those specific spots, whether it's in a valley or up high. Um, and then, of, of course, the cultivar and all other aspects of, of the growing of the coffee. But, you know, this is talking about how region climate and, and microbial patterns are part of this. And the microbes I hadn't thought of as much as being part of what is creating those final flavors. I mean, it makes total sense thinking about it, uh, but uh, whether those microbes are affecting the way that those plants are growing or if it's affecting other aspects of, of flavor somehow. Um, this this seems to be, it's it's one of the first papers I've ever run into that that actually talk about uh, the microbes and, and terroir and how that actually seems to be intrinsically connected. Yeah, it, it com- makes complete sense. I think that it, you talking about coffee, it's the same thing as in the wine industry um, with uh, certain growing regions or even microclimates um, affecting, you know, you have two lots of uh of grapes growing one, one lot may get more sunlight or have better drainage than the other lot. And that could affect, um, you know, that would affect the, uh, bio load, like whatever is growing all the microorganisms in the soil or on the plants and stuff, how they would be growing at different rates too, or in different concentrations and species, just because of the environmental differences. And that might be part of the reason why it's uh, not that it's necessarily tried that often, why something that seems that most everything about a microclimate is similar may still produce a different uh, finished product, a different flavor in the in the finished product if they're in different areas. Uh, even if everything seems like it's the same, well, the microbes might not be the same. So even if the microbes are being affected in similar ways, they may still be affecting the final flavor differently. That's kind of my, um, my look at this a little bit beyond that. I, and I could be totally totally off on and misinterpreting the, the research, but it's again, another fascinating aspect of how microbes are something that have been left out of the equation for so long in many different aspects, even in something that's microbes are so much inherently a part of such as grape, uh, as winemaking. Yeah. So I'm glad that someone's doing some research and really investigating, um, this because it it, it it makes a lot of sense in my mind that you know whatever is growing in the vineyard um, and how the fruit grows too because there there are certain types of bacteria or even um, not necessarily bacteria but uh, molds that um, it's botrytis um, is a type of mold that grows on grapes um, and they produce very very concentrated grapes um, very very sweet. Uh, dessert type wines and they're usually very sought after um in a positive way people really like the way these this moldy grape wine tastes um but i don't think anyone's really done a lot of research to really look at looked into the uh microbial load and how that affects 
quality of grapes as well, um, just to, to make normal table wine. Well, I'm thinking of, of quality too. I mean, that was another thing that I had run into was in regard to the wine industry more and more going towards plastic tanks for fermentation. And so I kind of wanted to run that by you too, is in regard to, I mean, what's kind of your take on, I mean, it's not nearly as romantic to be making wine or storing wine or aging wine in, in plastic tanks, uh, as opposed to say barrels, but does it affect anything? Is there issue of leaching in plastic? And I, I guess to, to bring that into not only wine, but trying to think about it with other plastics. I mean, I know sometimes people aren't as likely to use plastics uh, for different ferments, even food grade plastics, because the fear of leaching. And I think there's still a lot that may not be fully understood about that. Um, but what's kind of your take on the plastic in the wine and then plastic in general in for ferments? Um, when it comes to winemaking, I don't really have a problem um, with it. I think that it's, uh, I think it is a lot easier to use plastic bins. Um, a lot of places um, ferment things in plastic bins. I don't think that they've ever seen any sort of negative um, leaching um, or having a plastic taste in the wine. So I think they're using, but it's, it's probably very expensive, high food grade plastic. Um, now, that's an interesting point. I just want to jump in with regard to would, is that the only way that it would be noticeable? Like, would it, would it be a plastic taste if it were leaching or is it possible to have leaching that's not noticeable by a taste? I'm not quite sure if I know the answer to that question. Maybe I, there could be leaching that you wouldn't even notice the taste too. Um, cause, uh, there was some research done at, I want to say Oregon state where the chemistry department took plastic food containers that we, you know, the, the regular food containers that we buy at the grocery store and we put leftovers in, um, and they would heat leftover food in the microwave and then test the food, um, and see if they have any of those plastic chemicals in it. Um, you don't taste it, it tastes, the food tastes the same, but when they did some sort of gas chromatography, they noticed that there are some, um, plastic elements that were in the plastic container that had leached into the food, but you don't taste it. But that was specifically something where people the, applying heat or microwave to. Yeah. And fermentation does create a little bit of heat, but I don't think it would be enough heat. Like a microwave produces a lot of heat. Um, I don't think it, fermentation creates enough heat to create that leaching um, plastic taste or just to, to do any sort of leaching that doesn't create any kind of taste. Um, so I don't really, I think it's easier to do a fermentation in, um, plastic containers. Um, they're usually, uh, have a wider opening, so it's easier to get in and look at. And, um, some people use them for, uh, the production of red wine and red wine. You need to punch down the cap, which is the, uh, grape skins and get them submerged to extract the, the red color. Um, so it's easier to do them in those plastic bins cause they have a very open top, um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It just kind of takes away like the romance of it. They're, they're cheaper than barrels and stainless steel tanks. Um, so I think it's more of a cost saving things for thing for winemakers to use. And see, that's always the challenging thing for me is it's like, well, are we someday going to figure out that it was otherwise? I mean, even in the regard to going back to food too, with, with, with Crocs. I mean, some people get these amazing old vintage Crocs that have, uh, lead, uh, lead seal on them or whatnot, or like lead starts, mm -hmm. starts 
uh, leaching into the the ferments with the high acidity and whatnot. So, I mean, uh, there's there's a chance of using an old crock may or may not be a good thing to do. Um, and, and so, like, leaching is something to definitely be aware of. Um, I would think that there's enough research out there in regard to food grade plastics, especially ones like uh, poly, what is it, polycarbonate that is goes from a, a large scale, like negative 40 to plus uh, to 200 some degrees or whatnot. So it's got a large scale, even on the heat side of things. Um, because I think polycarbonates the, like when I think of restaurants and thinking about, uh, the clear plastic Cambro type containers, Mm -hmm. those, those ones, they just seem, seem to me intuitively as if they wouldn't really be that, uh, that much of a danger of leaching or otherwise. And, and obviously if people are eating out or are buying any, uh, packaged or processed food, they're probably experiencing a lot of plastics anyway. And so I guess it comes down to one of those things where it's like, well, do I just fear it because I don't know? Uh, am I cautious because I don't know? Or does it really not matter? And it's just, again, back to that whole romantic aspect, be it wine or be it uh, any anything else. I mean, there's definitely something nice and nicer about, say, even stainless steel beyond just the uh, romantic side of it. I mean, as long as I don't need something light, stainless steel is, is a lot nicer material to to be around and work with. I just, I, I like it better. Even if it's not a romantic, it's just an aesthetic and feel kind of sense. And the way I can feel like I can clean it better, but in the end, does it really matter? And that's what I, I, I haven't been able to feel confident enough either way, but I want to start making some larger ferments. And I think I'm just going to have to go with plastic at some point because I'm not ready to invest in large stainless steel vats or anything like that. Yeah, stainless steel gets it, it, it's it's pretty expensive, and so I think that the quality of the plastic that they're producing now, and the knowledge of the leaching aspect, and that plastics aren't really good for humans and in in any kind of doses. So I think that there's been a lot of, especially when the whole PBA uh, free phase came into effect, like two years ago, and everyone was talking, became much more known about plastics and how certain types of plastics that are used in foods versus industrial plastics. Um, I think more, more top or more people are interested in it. So there's more research done. And so they've just made those things a lot better for, for us. Um, and yeah, I just kind of, the thing is it just kind of takes away the romance of the fermentation. You don't have the old crock with the, that your grandmother gave you. Um, and it doesn't look as sophisticated as, you know, something, a stainless steel tank, but it, I don't, I think money wise, it's definitely a cost saving thing. It's also in the, in, in the winemaking industry, it's also a space saver because they can stack them um, a lot easier. They stack a lot better than barrels. Um, and so that just creates more room in the winery. Yeah. And it's just, uh, I, I guess I'm sold well enough. I guess I, I can at least try it. I mean, if, if I, uh, if if I end up getting up finding out when I'm ninety that there was a bunch of of plastics leached into me from listening to you, I'll I'll come back to haunt you and um, okay. But other than that, you know, I, I I guess yeah. I mean, I I just I yeah. It gets so it it gets difficult. It's one of those things that I'm still on the fence about. But I know plenty of people ferment things in in plastic and um and I know like beer uh home beer makers ferment in plastic a lot. I mean, I know they use the glass carboys and but I see a lot of the five or six gallon pails plastic food grade pails with airlocks on the top of them yeah sure i mean there's i yeah it just kind of takes away the romance it's just a cheaper uh vessel 
fermentation vessel that seems that gives, I mean, it also, it literally gives you more room to, um, during the fermentation, you said you had problems with, um, uh, some glass breaking in one of your ferments with plastic. You, you know, it doesn't burst as if the same, the same way that glass bursts, it kind of bubbles out and sticks out a little bit. So maybe you would have caught it in time to burp your fermentation if you had used plastic. Oh yeah. And, uh, well, I it'd be easier to install an airlock on something like that if I wanted to, too, since it's plastic and I can easily drill through that. So yeah, there's, I'll, I am still undecided, but I'll consider more doing some experiments with, with plastic. Not that I'll really, I guess, well, I guess if I really wanted to, I probably could test the final product. I could send it to some kind of lab somewhere and they could test for something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I know that there's definitely labs that do that or even at universities that could be a fun little side project for a grad student. Because that would be kind of nice to, if it is just a, a worrisome myth or a missing of, of uh, a romantic notion of, of what fermentation should be, be it alcohol or food. It'd be interesting to, to see. It's like, well, it doesn't really seem to, at least from a small scale experiment to be doing anything. And then I'd at least feel more comfortable telling people it's like, sure, if all you have is plastic, even though a lot of people have like smaller glass containers, if you want to do something large, plastic may not be that bad. Um, and so I will follow up with that in, in the future, maybe next, maybe next, uh, fall I'll, I'll try some of that stuff. But, and uh, one other thing that I did see, uh, news article about, which wasn't really about fermentation specifically, but it was about thinking about the seasonality of meat. And that's something I'll admit that I really haven't taken into full consideration about how I look at the seasonality of other foods and about the things I ferment and fermenting them in season makes it very easy for me to be able to extend the season of something and, and enjoy it for longer. Um, and at the same time, I, try not to to start too many ferments when something isn't in season because I generally would like to get it from my garden if I can. So I am limited with what I can get or get it from the farmer's market. But, you know, it's like, sure, at any point I can go to the store and make sauerkraut because there's always going to be cabbage, but it's nice to do it when it's in season because not only is it cheaper, but is it fresher and tastes more flavorful and otherwise. But the same can be said somewhat about meat and, you know, coming to the wrapping up of, of Thanksgiving last week and, uh, and thinking about like why we might eat turkey or poultry at the end of the season, um, some other things like like steak that or or beef. Uh, before World War II, this this article on on MotherJones.com was talking about how um, ranchers would flood the market with uh, with steers that were fattened up on the summer's pastures, and then after after that, there really wasn't as much beef available. Of course, frozen beef or otherwise could easily be uh, stored, so it's not like people can't eat beef, but. Now we can just feed cattle the grain or maybe the slop from or the, the waste products from the, the beer facilities. Like we can feed people, uh, not people, we can feed beef, uh, a cattle food for longer. So we don't have to necessarily think about it seasonally, but maybe there are some benefits to doing so. And, uh, and then more specifically to fermentation, there was a mention of, you know, even hogs were f- slaughtered in the fall um, after they'd gorged on acorns. So, you know, I've, I've seen those acorn finished hogs and otherwise becoming more popular now. And then, but like sausages, they were made when the workers were finished in the fields and they had time to do, to, to be in the packing houses because sausages take time to make and, you know, hams were cured all winter. So they were ready in time for Easter. So there's a connection to like why some people are having their Easter hams and different things like that. Looking at these larger seasonal aspects and specifically with things that are, that are cured or fermented, um, 
you know, there, there, there may be some benefit to getting the, the grass fed beef that hasn't been finished over the winter with dried hay or otherwise. And, and instead get that meat and then start experimenting with making sausages in the fall. Hmm. Well, I guess I never really thought about the, again, the seasonality of, um, having, having beef ready to go to market and then using that to make sausages. But it makes sense because a lot of, even now, I mean, there's hearty foods that we eat or we associate with for winter eating and sausages and hams and steaks. Um, whereas in the summer and in the spring, it doesn't seem as if, uh, seasonality, we eat that much stuff. It's, it's, it's interesting to look at that too, as, um, a seasonal thing that, I've, I've never really looked into it myself either or thought about it. But yeah, the whole um, slaughtering of the pigs and then curing uh, the meat for the hams that are eaten in Easter, which is the springtime, it's so it's it's really interesting to see it from that side too. Yeah, looking at these traditions that are so easy to forget, given that we can have food, we can have most any food any time of the year uh, and, and how some traditions still hold through with people eating certain things at certain holidays based on old traditions that were not based around a refrigeration or easily, um, easily fed animals uh, throughout, throughout the winter, I guess, you know, I, I hadn't thought about it that way because it's like, well, animals don't have to be seasonal because they can live through the winter. So it's not like they can't be slaughtered at different points throughout the winter and served up and, and, and otherwise, but they are going to be eating different things, arguably have different nutrients in their their final meat and and the things that they're eating are translating into into what what is the the final steak or or whatnot so there's there there may be something or well there probably is i mean it seems like a seasonality to meat as well so i might have to start getting into sausage making and really do that as kind of a fall thing so um, along with all the other things, maybe, maybe not quite fall, maybe more of a winter thing as I'm locked yeah. up inside. <laughs> yeah. I think it would be a really uh, fun winter project. I mean, cause it is all inside. I mean, it, you just have to go source out your, your sauce or your pork or your beef or what Turkey or whatever you're going to be making into sausage. But, um, you know, it, it is a seasonality thing. Cause when I was, when I was little, I grew up on a farm and we had, um, beef, cows, um, that we would raise and then sell. But I, I, it just occurred to me and it just never really made sense. I didn't, I also didn't pay attention to it when I was little, I was busy doing other things that, you know, I didn't really care too much, but no, we would always have, um, new baby calves in the winter. Um, and then we would keep them until the fall, but we had a pasture that they would graze in and, and it was easier to graze them in, in the pasture in the summer because it was cheaper. We didn't really have to buy any grain, but in the winter we would, we wouldn't really have that many, um, cattle, um, in stock, I guess, cause we would have, we sold some, um, to the butcher shop and some, we would keep some and then we would sell some to, I think they would go to grocery stores or something like that. But, um, it was grain is expensive. Um, and so if in the winter when there's snow on the ground or the ground is frozen and the grass isn't growing, then you have to feed them that way with grains and keep them inside. So it was, it's easier to have them, you know, through the summer and then to offload them to butcher shops and other people in, in the fall. And that's the thing is grain is expensive to, to be feeding these, the, this, this livestock, things outside of season. I mean, it's like, even if, even if the, the, the cattle can live through the winter, they, they have, then they don't get to eat seasonally. 
Um, and if people are wanting to eat seasonally or ferment things that are in season, it might be interesting to look at this aspect as well, because, uh, because there, there is kind of a, a bubble of, of, uh, you know, like grain is still expensive even today in relative terms to using the the actual pasture or whatnot. But I mean, a lot of the stuff, the corn and soy are subsidized. So they're still cheaper than what they would have been, say, before World War II. So um, so what was before inconceivably expensive now is might be expensive, but doable because there's a market for it. Whereas, you know, maybe there is something to consider. Right. Think seasonally yeah. about these kind of things and, and ferment, ferment seasonally. It's fun. It's fun to ferment things when they're when they're in season and arguably a little bit less expensive. Although if you're going with grass-fed uh, beef and um, other pastured livestock, I mean, it's potentially more expensive anyway, but it's still going to be cheaper than out of season, I'm assuming, for most of those things um, relative to how much they would be otherwise. I think. I think I just got that all confused. But yeah, yeah pretty much back to the just ferment seasonally. It's fun. Well, hey, in that regard, I guess we can just kind of wrap up because that was yeah. that was all the news I had for today. That's all the news I have, too. Well, hey, I we'll be back next week with a topic of, of surprise. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but we'll be back with it. And all of these news articles, links, and anything else that we mentioned will be in the show notes. And you can find those at firmup.com slash podcast slash 42. And then uh, you can email us with any questions, comments, suggestions, or anything else you want to share with us uh, to podcast at firmup.com. Or you can hit us up on Facebook at firmup or Twitter at firmup or Google plus at plus firmup. And until next time, firm up. <laughs>